So welcome guys to WEMcast with me, Owen Walker. So today I have uh, a really interesting guest and colleague with me, uh, Khalil Sariad Ilario. So Khalil is a security and risk management consultant with SACO Consulting um, and is the general director. So he offers strategic and operational support to humanitarian aid agencies on risk and crisis management and humanitarian logistics in emergency uh, situations. So Khalil started working in conflict zones very early as a freelance photojournalist and TV producer in the Middle East 19 years ago. After three years regionally covering uh, the Israeli-Palestine conflict and South Lebanon, he changed direction and started working for humanitarian organizations in emergency programs like Iraq, Sudan, Congo, Ivory Coast, Occupied Palestine, uh, or and Haiti. So in 2014, he was the Deputy Logistics Director for Minnesota Sans Frontier, where he previously served as a Cell Operational Logistics Manager, coordinating several countries, including Yemen, Nigeria, Mali, Chad, Colombia, and Niger. Prior to that, he, he was the, um, the Head of Mission in Iraq and Logistics Coordinator in Sudan for Medicine Dumont. In the last six years, he has, uh, he has um, supported other NGOs and aided agencies in S South Sudan, Central African Republic, Nigeria, Niger, Mali, Colombia, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and the Balkans. And his fundamental tenant is, is, is to uh, humanitarian workers and volunteers worldwide, training them in security and um, hostile environment uh, principles. So welcome, Khalil, to the, to the podcast. Hi, hi, Owen. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Pleasure being Absolutely. with you. Excellent, excellent to have you. Excellent to have you, Khalil. So, Khalil, um, what I just wanted to do really is dig down into your into your background and into your past, if that's okay, and just ask you uh, really around some of the um, some of the security and also um, conflict principles that not you that you that you both teach to humanitarians, but that you fundamentally learn over over your career. So, no better place to start with really than than just just to really ask. Are there any sort of in your mind, Khalil? Are there any overriding principles of security that you've learned over the years? Um, yes, for I mean, humanitarian security is a very, very particular uh, way or methodology of managing security. So, so just I will go back uh, to the very principle of, of what is security, humanitarian security management, because it differs from typical and what we understand as security management. Um, overall in the corporate world, the private world, and security uh, environment. So the, the security check is, a, is, a, uh, is the, the quality of being secure. So in conflict zones, of course, uh, those are coming definition by strength. Uh, humanitarian organizations, they are civilians uh, working in conflict zones, uh, surrounded by professionals on security management, like armies and security forces, and and irregular militias and uh, opposition groups and stuff. So um, the idea of security management for humanitarian NGOs is how to be secure, uh, how to stay uh, out of harm's way, by but remaining operational. Because humanitarian NGOs, they have to access beneficiaries. They have to access populations in need, uh, the most vulnerable people in conflict zones. Uh, so they need to navigate uh, through these environments in which uh, threats are put all over the place with armies, regular militias, 
uh, it's really about conflict now today. Uh, so that makes it very challenging. Uh, and, and yeah, the, the, the principles in which angels operate um, are very simple. First of all, um, first of all, is neutrality, impartiality, and independence of the of the operations. They have to present themselves as being neutral, not taking sides in in conflict. Uh, that's one of them. In uh, impartiality, how to distribute aid uh, to the most vulnerable people uh, without discrimination of race and political views and stuff. Um, and independent, being independent from any political power or financial power, which make it very, very challenging today because of the nature of the conflict. Uh, so though NGOs try to operate as much as they can under these principles, really objectively reaching them is very complicated. And today, different actors in the, in the uh, in, in conflict, they will challenge NGOs because of, or because of these principles, ruling principles, or, or managing security. Uh, they will say, yes, uh, we are neutral, uh, we are independent, we are impartial when we are developing our speech to negotiate humanitarian access and secure a humanitarian space. Uh, though, though, though NGOs today are defending from funds and funds are coming from, uh, countries which are strategically or elsewhere involved in this, in this very conflict. So, so for them it's very complicated to navigate. Recently I've been working a lot for, with NGOs operating in Libya, uh, which is, I think today, 2020, the most political, uh, crisis complex context, uh, in which NGOs are involved. Um, for which even authorities are getting funds and getting support from the European Union and from the European states and other states um, on the on the issues of migrants, uh, pretty much to keep them out of Europe. Um, but uh, they still funding as well NGOs to respond to that crisis, which makes it very complicated for the NGOs uh, to negotiate. That's the case in Nigeria, that's the case in Mali, that's the case in many, many countries. Um, priority of life. Life is first. So. What is the impact of your program and, and what is the level of exposure that you're ready to get your staff to in order to achieve your operations? And that is uh, proportionate risk. Uh, what is the risk we are taking as humanitarian staff in order to achieve these operations? What is the impact and, and what are we ready to put at stake uh, to manage our operations? And, and sometimes this principle is overridden. Uh, because of course all NGOs they think, yeah, our programs are very important, our programs are crucial. Uh, not that they are life-saving, uh, like in some other organizations, emergency focused organizations like Nessus and Frontier, uh, which are really going far in the front line, uh, medical, medical activity saving lives uh, in conflict areas. Uh, not all the NGOs are, are, are saying that. So when, when it comes to, so when it comes to, um, to what are the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it comes to, to, the, to the, the, the program we put in place, we have to consider what is the risk we're taking and is it worth it uh, to take the risk. Are we asking humanitarian staff that we are sending to the field if they agree with us, if they, uh, if they are consentant, these are the risks we are going to take in order to achieve your mission uh, and this is the global context. Uh, are you okay with it? Yeah. Um, and this sometimes is not that it's overreading sometimes. Yeah, other are overreading, but yeah, but I've seen, I've seen so many young humanitarians, um, absolutely willing to save the world, <laughs> for say, uh, and, uh, and yeah, and, and overpassing this uh, crucial, crucial element, 
uh, Pakistan security management for, for which put them at risk. That's fun. That's fascinating, Khalil. So one of the principles uh, I'm aware that you teach is around situation awareness and situation, situation awareness from uh, environment scanning, from collating information. But something I learned from you quite early on is around um, around um, talking to all all partners within the NGO so quite often the drivers will have probably some of the best situation awareness because the drivers are on the ground and familiar with checkpoints familiar with the dynamic nature of security um, how important in your mind is it to is it to really um, look at all facets of, of the organization and, and appreciate um, the situation awareness from from every 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 sort every sort of angle um, that that you possibly can. Um, well, uh, contexts are very complex. Uh, NGOs sometimes uh, humanitarian NGOs, uh, not all NGOs. Humanitarian NGOs they have a relative short lifespan missions: six months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, in which they are submerged into the operations and how we program and how we manage our programs, beneficiaries, whatever the quality of our program. And they have a tendency to lose uh, the whole situational awareness and what is the environment of, of this of this uh, context. Um, and, and, and then we have this vision tunnel or tunnel vision uh, in which we are uh, submerged because we don't have time. Our mission is nine months. And we have, we have to achieve this, 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 and the objectives with these indicators and things. Uh, so it's hard in nine months to understand the context. It's very complicated to, to have to have in the graph of what is going on, what are the actors involved, uh, where are the threats might come in from, uh, what is the perception of these stakeholders, of our action, of uh, our staff. Uh, and we have these things that we have to think about. Uh, humanitarian security is management. So you, you need to, have to manage your program. Yes, you manage your staff. But you need to manage that. Uh, sometimes we don't have time to ask the driver about uh, what do you think about this or that, or what do you think about that group or that group. Some engineers are doing it, um, but are they systematically involving their national senior staff in the in, in the process to better understand what is the situation, what is the conflict dynamics, what is the crime dynamics in the in the, in the area? It's not always the case. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes we don't have time. It's involuntarily. Uh, we think we know better because we have the methodology. Um, sometimes we forget we forget that 50% uh, of knowledge, more than 50% of knowledge, is among your national staff. So you need to inquire your drivers, you need to inquire your guards, uh, you need to inquire your logistical officer, you need to inquire your suppliers that are moving around uh, uh, with trucks in, in the area and that they know perfectly what the checkpoints are, uh, uh, which checkpoints are in the area, which. Uh, uh, groups are operating in the area, any recent uh, attacks or any recent incidents that, that took place in, in that area where we operate. So, humanitarian security is anticipating threats. It's anticipating, we, we are not, I mean, humanitarian staff are not security professionals. So, need to anticipate, they, do, they need to avoid risk. Um, that's why you need to understand what is happening, what is surrounding them, and try to analyze what could happen in the next week, in the next month, in the next two months, uh, elections are coming. Okay, what are the risks? What are the scenarios? Because we need to anticipate. Uh, we, we, we don't have weapons uh, to which we can answer the threat. Uh, we don't have military convoys. We have no armed protection. So we need to anticipate and avoid entering into risky situations because that is what it's my security about. Yeah. 
So Khalil, that's that's a fascinating insight because, like you said, you know we're moving around without without this this military presence. So just digging a little bit deeper into some of the concepts that you teach, because I'm aware you know you teach and run these hostile environment awareness training for humanitarians across the board. So you know multi-domain, multi-organisation. What are some of the fundamental principles around immediate conflict that you teach? Um, if if someone's coming up to the car or indeed pointing a gun in your face what are some of the overriding principles that that, that you confer don't resist first of all uh, somebody gets you to the car with a with a gun uh, do not resist if they want the car give them the car if they want the money give them money do not resist uh, don't play heroes um, if there is an ambush how to override that ambush uh, in different scenarios uh, if you are aggressed uh, how to manage conflict, how to um, um, first aid in this case something happens to you. And for me, in the hostile environment training, uh, that's how I met actually. For me, first aid in hostile environment is crucial. It's 50% of the job. Uh, now, for these trainings, though, we are teaching them the best practices in how to react and some guiding principles of do not resist, be cooperative. If you are kidnapped, this is how you have to behave yourself. Don't resist the, the capture, the transport, uh, uh, the, 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 the detention period. Um, those there are guiding principles and best practices it still won't work for all situations. Uh, and, and that is something we teach as well. We don't have a magic pill uh, for which uh, I would give you the blue pill and then all the situations will be managed properly and handled properly. Uh, and that we use as, more, as realistic as possible scenarios and simulations for them, still it's a, a game between brackets and you don't really know how your body, uh, how your nervous system is going to react. Is it fight or fly uh, reaction? You don't know in moment come, in the truth, you could read moment come for how you're going to react. So we're teaching them to create some muscle memory and some reflexes uh, with the best practices. Uh, but today we see that in many scenarios, they don't really have the chance. Uh, uh, it happened recently in Niger uh, with six Frenchmen uh, tragically being killed by, by opposition groups. Um, they received uh, they received the heat training, uh, but it didn't work. Uh, and and we are trying to prepare them for the worst. But uh, and heat training is part of this new duty of care, uh, new wave of responsibility among NGOs. Um, we are training our staff on heat, uh, how to react to hostile environments, to hostile incidents, uh, to critical incidents. Um, and that's good, but that is not going to exempt your responsibility as an NGO. Uh, and I, I like more training uh, humanitarian staff how to avoid and how to analyze, how to avoid this uh, risk. Uh, because when they come, you might have a training, you have a good uh, skills, you might develop uh, first aid responses and, and everything, but um, it doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work all the time. So Kula, looking at your past and looking at your, your background in multiple regions um, uh, across the Middle East and in Africa, could you, uh, Iraq, Sudan, Congo, Ivory Coast, occupied Palestinian territories, could you speak to some of maybe the most um, difficult times within security that you've faced and what you've, what you've learned from that? I learned that 
situational awareness is not something related. It's just on, it's not only on your your context, your operating context. Something that happened thousands miles away, thousand miles away, it can have an impact on the security. Uh, remember Iraq 2003, uh, working right after the conflict, uh, working with uh, with medical organization, rehabilitating operational theaters. Um, the French Minister of Foreign Affairs at that time uh, came out to the TV saying, we are gathering information from NGOs operating in Gaza uh, about the whereabouts of Hamas and everything. That's very well known, First Minister at that time, co-founder of an NGO as well. Uh, automatically, me being in Baghdad, well, we have, we're going to have troubles because this guy funded at that time by NGO, and he's saying that he's gathering intelligence from NGOs operating on the ground uh, about about Hamas for about. Uh, and that automatically put, up, put up all the humanitarian community at risk in, in, in Iraq, in which already we were looked at with suspicious, uh, with suspicion uh, of okay, these guys, humanitarian NGOs. We're not very good delivering messages uh, of who we are, what we hear, humanitarian principles, and everything. So people there, they develop uh, all sorts of legends or normal legends in their minds. Okay, NGOs are spies, and uh, so that really reinforced that message. And we had to scale up our our security procedures because we were expecting an attack uh, because of that because of that take. Um, another occasion, um, I remember. I remember. Yeah, the the, the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, designs or caricatures and and, and pictures. That, that, that had an impact in, 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 in French organizations working in uh, Islamic countries on the Muslim environment. That definitely is something that has happened. So that is, that is one thing. Uh, situational awareness, um, when, 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 Sada, when, 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 the, when, I remember when, when uh, the US Army uh, killed, found and killed uh, Osama bin Laden in, in, in Pakistan, uh, how they did it? Uh, they used a false vaccination campaign against polio in the area to identify and saying, okay, knocking on door to door, knocking, looking for them, saying we are vaccinated children against polio and everything. And that, that is the, the, the methodology they used to, to catch on to get them. A um, couple of months later, polio vaccination teams in Northeast Nigeria were targeted uh, because of that. And they already, we developed all the vaccine, the thing, the vaccine is going to harm us more than, but then it's used as, as, as a tool um, uh, to, to gather information and to develop this kind of operation against, against uh, uh, these, these leaders. Of. So, so everything that happens, uh, not only locally or regionally, even really, really far away from us, uh, really have an impact. And that is part of the situation now where not only my drivers in this road, but okay, what is happening today in Paris, what is happening today in Pakistan, what's happening today regionally, because that would definitely have an impact in, in your security. So, um, so Khalil, talking with you and um, and working alongside you uh, around some of the principles on the on the heat training, um, the hostile environment training, and just how quickly things can escalate. So how quickly dangerous situations can occur. And some of you, you, 
you know, listening to you emphasize the fact that it can feel safe, you know, it can look safe and you can turn a corner and things can change on a, on a, in a moment. Um, from some of the, just looking at some of the de-escalation techniques that you use. So one of the de-escalation techniques you said is just don't resist, you know, hand everything over, you know, don't, don't pose a threat, be, be, be a non-threat and, and predictable. But can, could you speak to some of the other de-escalation techniques that, that you, you would use to try and diffuse some, some quite fractious or conflict situations? Uh, that, that is one. Uh, in the heat training, we, uh, we, 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 we organize a scenario, a simulation in which, uh, in which uh, participants they have to go to an assessment and they have to meet some local leaders, some local authorities, or local tribes, depending on the context. Uh, and that is already a, a diffusing of, of conflicts and hostilities there. Uh, then, they have, uh, then they have a situation in which they are attacked uh, because many of these uh, places, many of these uh, countries and environments where they work, uh, suddenly they change, and 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 you cannot diffuse that. You are under attack, so you, the only thing you can do is to protect yourself. So we really teach them. We te really teach them how to uh, protect themselves against uh, random fire or targeted fire. Uh, how to uh, diffuse an ambush uh, if they are uh, ambushed by, by a group. Uh, we try to simulate as many kinds of ambushes as we can. Other clients, they will ask that. Uh, I will, I will keep training for some clients specifically to that country. So I will study uh, in depth how ambushes are taking place in that area where this NGO is working, so we can guide them through through the process. But when it comes to to defusing, uh, if we are talking about arm attack or robbery or carjacking, uh, theft. Uh, burglary, that's easy. Do not resist, give everything, that is what they want, and the only thing you want is the incident to be over as fast as possible. When we're talking about war-related incidents, the only thing you can do is to protect yourself. So ambushes, how to get down from the car, stay safe, improve your cover, um, how to drive through an ambush, how to manage your car if your, if your driver is down, um, how to protect yourself against more technical about different kind of weapons, uh, airstrikes. Right? So really, heat training is about protection very much. It is reaction. Uh, so the first reaction is not resist, but um, yeah, the kidnapping situation in which there is a physical contact between the threat and yourself. Um, but otherwise, when talking about shooting and arms involved, another thing you can do is really to protect yourself. So, and in case you are you're hit then or in case you have an injury in, in, among your your colleagues how to how to react fast and quick with the means you have to, to provide first aid the, the best way possible so Khalil, could you talk to or speak to uh, the principles around uh, attention to detail uh, in the environment in so anyone who's thinking about going into a humanitarian environment and from just an, an environment scanning or horizon scanning uh, perspective and you know some of the concepts of security in these in in these in these places could you speak to sort of your mandate or some of the principles you teach around attention to detail um, because yeah. That, I think that's quite an important concept. Definitely. Um, first of all, somebody going to the humanitarian world, first of all, I will, I, will, I will recommend, and I always recommend people I teach about inquiring about the NGO they're going to measure it. 
first of all. First of all, the situational awareness comes with the, with the employer first, with going, which is the NGO, where you're going and you're stepping into a hostile environment, for example. Uh, so you need to look into this NGO, okay, do they have security plan? Do they have security skills person in uh, headquarters? Are you getting a briefing uh, before going into that? Not only an operational briefing, that is what the hospital looks like, and what is the services, and that is the emergency unit it looks like, and this is your duty. Um, but more, what is the risk of being in that environment? This is the risk analysis, this is security procedures, this is security plan, this is the communication procedures. It's communication is, is everything uh, in, in this context, internal and external. Uh, do they have a duty of care policy? Do they have a security policy? So first you have to look into the NGO. Uh, if they have all these, uh, documents and all these procedures and all these policies before sending a staff into hostile environment. Maybe you have to go through a heat training uh, before being deployed. Those are very good signs of a good security management, health situation. Uh, if you ask for a briefing and there's no briefing, if you ask for risk analysis, there's no risk analysis. If you go to Afghanistan and they don't give you a proof of life to fill in just in case eventually it's potentially you, you kidnap. Those are signs that the NGO is mismanaging security, mismanaging security uh, of the employee. And that is a bad sign before even stepping into that context. Uh, maybe they will tell you that yeah, you will get the briefing uh, upon arrival in the capital, which uh, is often the, the case. Uh, and then you, you get there and the head of mission or the person responsible for getting the briefing is not there, it's holidays, uh, the paper is not updated, it's two years old, uh, the risk analysis is always under construction, as uh, from my experience. Those are bad signs, and that is part of the situational awareness that people must have before engaging with an NGO. If all that is in place, then you will have to look into the external situation analysis and look into, okay, what are the conflict dynamics? What is the crime situation in that area? Um, how we are moving? And I always ask uh, people, or request people to be uh, critical about uh, about, okay, are the procedures we put in place really answering the questions I have related to this context or to this risk, this environment? Uh, because everything is avoidant. And I, I, I cannot insist more that avoidance is everything for NGO. And then, yeah, what are your drivers, ethnical group, and the ethnical composition of your staff in that environment, if there is any ethnical conflict? Um, what is the composition of your uh, international staff, nationalities, um, how people are driving, how people are behaving, how people are communicating, how, where are they getting the information from, uh, are there any clusters regarding security, are, are people discussing with each other, um, what are other practices of other NGOs doing in, in the same location. Those are all uh, things about situational awareness, but I, I cannot insist more on starting really internally in the NGO before stepping into that context. Uh, and when you get the risk analysis, and you say, okay, in this country, there is a risk of kidnapping, there is a risk of uh, target killing, there is a risk of sexual aggression, there is a risk of whatever, the staff must be consented and, and trust the organization, put things in place and tools in place and protocols in place to mitigate risk. 
Well, that's fantastic. And so just, just, just looking at your past and, and to where you are now. So what would, what have you learned fundamentally over the last 15 years that maybe you didn't, so you've been, you, your, your career has stretched over the duration of, of the past 20, 20 or so years in, in some amazing different countries across the Middle East and Africa. Um, what have you, what, what have you learned over the past 20 years that maybe you didn't know when you, when you first stepped into, into the humanitarian arena no rush don't rush don't rush and don't, don't just go into 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 the scene without thinking twice or thinking three times even uh, and and that's very important we rush very fast into into situations that we don't fully understand uh, when you're young and you are again as I said before you plenty of energy you plenty of principles and you want to save the world and you have want to help and you see that the world is going crazy and going nuts and you want to absolutely do anything uh, you can uh, to help or don't rush. I was there and I did that before and, and it's, a good, it's a bad advice. Yeah, but though we have a lot of money, we need to control uh, that, that uh, envy, envy to, to help and to do things. Uh, being there on that, think twice. Uh, that is one thing that I, I learned. That comes with risk appetite. Uh, my life has changed. Uh, I went to many situations, many security incidents. Um, uh, what is the risk appetite in order to, to achieve these things that we do want to do? That is something we have to ask ourselves. Uh, what are we ready to risk? Uh, and with age, uh, family, uh, children, that changes completely. Uh, so that is something I learned. Um, listen more to national colleagues. That is something I learned, absolutely. We don't have the truth. We don't know the context. We don't understand the context. Contexts are too complicated today to be understood. So we need to involve our national colleagues. We need to make them part of the, of the analysis and part of the situational awareness understanding. Because though we have our methodologies and good practices and everything, 50% of the job is really, really, really understanding through your staff what is the situation in that, in that? And that is something I learned, I would say, the hard way in some occasions. Um, something I really learned, uh, and that is something that struck me a lot, and something that drove me into security management for humanitarians, is perception. How are humanitarian NGOs, humanitarian staff, how they are perceived today uh, by the different stakeholders in that country? Um, you might think you are accepted. You might think that you have a good image uh, of the organization, of your programs, of your staff in that area, and you might think that people appreciate you or that people trust you, and it's not the case. If you really dig deep into, into, into that context understanding, it's not only externally, but our position in that context. What is the perception of our beneficiaries? What is the perception we have from our staff? What is the perception we have from the government, uh, from, the, from officials? It's crucial to understand our position in that situation and how to improve our security. We don't know how people are looking at us and thinking about us. Uh, and that is, that is something we don't have time to do uh, very often. Uh, and that is something that puts us at risk because we think, we assume that being humanitarian staff, we are nice. Uh, we are doing a great job and uh, we are saving a lot of lives or we are helping a lot of children in need countries or populations in need. But, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. So we really have to to inquire how we proceed. Uh, second, the impact of our programs. 
when you are young, when you are entering and rushing, you're not measuring not only your risk or you, you're supposed to, but also what is the impact that you have with your program? What is the balance? Are you, are you impacting the social or economical uh, balance of power in that way with your activity, with your program? That is something that uh, I really learned to measure because it's really a source of insecurity. And, and then duty of care. Duty of care before sending, before asking people to do stuff on the field, uh, before requesting gather information to better understand the context, or better understand how the group will work, because we have to care about our staff. And we just care, uh, we are responsible for our staff. That is something that I, that I learned when we were young. When I was a journalist, I was depending on myself pretty much. So, uh, not really that thing on duty of care myself, I was really ready to expose a lot of things. But when you're in my time, management uh, position, you are responsible for people. So duty of care is crucial. That's something I really understood and, and I learned over the years. So Khalil, could you speak to how you've navigated your mental health over over the past duration of your career? Because you know, in these some of these situations, they are very very fractious. You know, mandate something like you know twelve fourteen hour work work days, consistently working, maybe no days off, maybe not seeing family or friends. How have you offset or ameliorated your own mental health in in that in that in those situations? Um, in, in these situations, if you have an emergency, uh, like the Haiti earthquake or, or the tsunami in Aceh or other, other emergency situations, it's difficult. Uh, you have to rush and then you have to have find some time, uh, to decompress. Uh, but that comes, that comes after a long, long period of, of mental and physical tiredness, uh, because you need to respond to the first hours, the first moments of the, of the emergency. Um, Going on breaks is important. I remember on the Ebola response for, for MSF, for example, we were sending medical staff uh, on rest and recuperation every every two weeks, uh, pretty much, which is a record on, on rest and recuperation for staff because they were exposed to an amazing level of, of stress uh, being on the suit, taking care of Ebola patients and in the tent uh, under 47, 50 degrees that climbs up in, inside your suit then midday inside the tent. So, so you need to recover and you need to rest. Um, I do a lot of sport. I always did a lot of sport <laughs> in my life. So, so during this, this long hour mission working, you need to find a way to, to rest. For me, sport was, was crucial. Eventually in some countries during weekends, I went fishing, uh, trying to de disconnect from, from, from that. And then, again, in acute emergencies, it's impossible. The only, the way, the only thing you can do is after that period of two weeks, three weeks, uh, acute emergency response, then it's the decompression phase and you go for a week in, in the neighboring country uh, and try to decompress and have some other activities. Um, team building uh, with your staff is crucial when you're managing the staff as well and the, the situations you need to take care of the mental health and the physical health. Um, you will face resistance because you need to keep working and you need to keep uh, functioning, uh, uh, and sometimes it happened in the past that, that you need to oblige uh, and impose rest uh, for staff uh, because stress levels are good, and there are certain level uh, of stress is, is good uh, and is positive for performance. But then 
fatigue in uh, and as a management, as a manager, you need to identify that level of stress and that where the, where the fatigue starts installing in, in, in your staff and get them some rest. Um, identifying it in ourselves is difficult as well. Uh, that is something I learned as well over the years, that no rush. Uh, the conflict will be there, the needs will be there, the, the beneficiary will be there. And uh, yeah, when you when you when you climb up your level your level of stress, you don't take rest. You take some time for your family, from sport, for leisures. Um, you lose you lose objectivity and you lose awareness of of your environment. So so it's crucial to to keep focusing that uh, on that way and keep a good balance between rest and and speedy and uh, and, and work. So, Khalil, people listening to this might think, "Gosh, you know, there's some." Real, real challenges and security risks uh, working in a humanitarian aid there's a lot of um, intense periods of work it's quite it's quite difficult it's it's very challenging and dynamic things change quite quickly um, and so you know what what's the appeal why should I go into this what you know why why how does it give back in, in essence so could you speak to how humanitarian work in your mind has has given back to you or indeed some of the highs of, of humanitarian work from from your the longevity of your career um, accident wise if you look in the overall numbers uh, and that is just to join your first coming on it looks dangerous it looks challenging uh, overall the numbers of incidents uh, in other uh, in other fields uh, humanitarian is less. I mean, you, might, you have less incidents in the humanitarian world than you have, in, for example, in the fishing uh, uh, or in the mine, uh, or miners have a, a, a lot of security issues, uh, or the construction workers. So the accidentology uh, number, overall numbers are not really very different uh, from from uh, from humanitarian, and even humanitarian is even less. Um, the, the idea that it's dangerous that we have a lot of security incidents. It's not entirely, I mean, we have to analyze it a bit more in depth because, because we have more humanitarian staff today than 20, 30 years ago. So is it today more dangerous to work in the humanitarian field than it was 20 years ago? I don't know. I'm not sure it was. Um, I, don't, I don't think that it's more dangerous, though, though conflict involves as well and the perception of danger involves. Uh, it might be slightly more dangerous, but but we cannot say that. Uh, yeah, 20 years ago we had we have a ratio of humanitarian workers in the field that was very low, or lower than it is today. Today, the, today we are employing, or the sector is employing 8 million people overall. So, so 20 years ago we we're maybe a million of them. So the less people uh, on the ground doing humanitarian uh, field work, the less exposed, uh, and and vice versa. Um, so, so for, for the risk, um, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's relative. Everything comes back to, to preparedness. Everything comes to situational awareness. Everything comes to to how well uh, I wanted to I wanted to help from the beginning. So I wanted to uh, to help people. Uh, uh, I was a TV producer before uh, starting my turn action a long time ago. Um, and I was showing what was happening. Uh, but then, very quick, uh, the idea of showing it in order to change in the sun itself in my mind. Uh, but things were not changing. 
uh, and talking particularly about the Israeli and the Palestinian conflict where, where I started uh, uh, working as a TV producer. You wanted to change things. You, you wanted to have an impact on that situation with these people um, through your work and through your images and through your, but didn't change. Uh, so, so it got worse actually and, and it got dangerous. So you are living or co-living and sharing that space with humanitarian organizations, uh, journalists, humanitarian organizations, even though it's inside the first to arrive. Um, so that's why I said, okay, maybe doing something about this. Uh, will 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 give me more reward eventually. That is what happened, and, and that is where I felt that is where I felt good doing things to improve people, life people, or to or, or to improve the situation of people in in, in acute emergencies, trying to save lives, trying to uh, distribute aid, and and, and yeah, and uh, suffocate uh, and alleviate suffering uh, from people in that environment. And that is something that was really really triggering for me today. After being uh, yeah a consultant with Saco Consulting six years now, only working with humanitarian NGOs, and really concerned about the security and safety of, of humanitarian staff because if you are not safe, you cannot help vulnerable people, and that is and that is the I mean security is not a it's not a goal; it's a means to be able to reach these vulnerable populations uh, in this uh, conflict area. So that is what took me, drove me from the from the media and the journalistic field into humanitarian action, the international cooperation, and then into into helping with my experience other NGOs to, to be able to provide that, provide aid. Killer, that's fantastic. So just as, as we come into land on the conversation, uh, just my final question really would be around how has Ebola and sort of the contemporary climate complicated an already difficult human humanitarian landscape. So, how how has it affected either both your ecosystem or indeed the the, the landscape in 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 human humanitarian work? Ebola. We have another another outbreak in Congo again. Um, <clears throat> it's it's really affecting. It's adding a threat. Ebola uh, for many of these populations is uh, not known or is poorly known. Uh, as it happened with cholera in some countries, like Haiti, for example, where we never faced any cholera before, uh, it's adding a threat because in some countries, in some contexts, uh, they see NGOs as being the cause of bringing that thing into their communities or into that, the context, uh, or bringing it from somewhere else and, and bringing it inside. Uh, Ebola is challenging for, for, for contexts in which the threat, you don't see it, you don't smell it, you don't, uh, so you need to put extreme measures and you'll put extreme protection uh, measures. And the more protection measures you put, um, the less you get to reach the population which you have to help and to discuss and to negotiate and to, uh, so it's adding one more layer of, of protection that is uh, taking you away uh, from from that contact that NGOs need to have with the communities and with the communities where they work. Um, fear is very scary, uh, so that is adding more into this an extreme situation in which many humanitarian workers, they would say, okay, I'm ready to accept going into a conflict area, I'm ready to accept that I eventually I might be robbed or that I might be exposed to ambush maybe, but Ebola, no, I don't want to go through an Ebola because of the mortality rate. Uh, well, now there's a vaccine, but but still uh, it's not 100% efficient. So, so 
that is something that I experienced when, when intervening severely on Liberia during the last Ebola crisis. Um, in my staff, they didn't want to go to these missions and find, uh, to find, uh, skillful, skillful, uh, volunteers in my working for difficult because, because it was scary and never any scary. Um, so, so that added another layer, internally and externally, uh, with the communities. Yeah, that's complicated yeah. To, to manage. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we, we, we've been so uh, paranoid about COVID that people have taken the eye off the ball that, that there is another outbreak of, of Ebola in, in the Congo and, and and as it raised its ugly head in Sierra Leone, it, it seems to be doing so now in, in Congo. So just, I suppose, an adjunct question to, to my final question is, how has the COVID landscape changed changed your work over the past over the past six months? <laughs> Travel restrictions. Uh, I, my work is based on traveling and uh, everything I do is traveling. A lot I'm doing remotely and that is something that I developed recently because of the COVID and I have to adapt the way of working, but traveling and travel restrictions, not being able to train, not being able to gather uh, people in a, in a room, in a training facility, that has been complicated uh, for me. Um, that, I think that is the only, I mean, financially, all of us have a, uh, an impact somehow, uh, and I had to diversify and to find other ways of working, other ways of, of trying to do things, and keep uh, helping uh, NGOs. So I remember when the the the, the closure of uh, early uh, late February, last February March, uh, I contacted an, an, another fellow uh, colleague of mine, uh, ex maritime worker who, who just founded as well a consulting company, uh, and they are, they were able to de to deploy uh, small airplanes. Uh, to fly around uh, for medical evacuation, for medical emergencies, or for security evacuations in, in, in countries. So I associated myself with them, trying to provide these air services to NGOs that were not able to fly anymore. Um, so yeah, definitely the NGOs as well, they couldn't fly around their staff, they couldn't uh, change, or they couldn't um, uh, take their staff out of countries, bringing new staff in, so that was challenging, so I said to myself, Maybe I can help as well. Uh, though from the business perspective, of course, we're trying to fly fly in and out people from countries, uh, pretty much. Yeah, but mainly my challenges: distance training, Zoom. I discovered other platforms I was not aware, <laughs> and online remote training. That that is okay, but it's not the same because, because you don't have that contact with people. I need the contact with, with people and to um, yeah to be to be with people in the same place. That really affects me. But tra for me, I mean, travel has been has been has been difficult, uh, has been difficult to us. Absolutely, Khalil. And something me, me and you spoke of only yesterday around rolling out the hostile uh, environment awareness course. A lot of it is conferred learning from, from non-verbals and from scenario-based and simulation. And you're, you're right, this, that although a blended approach can, can, can occur, it's, it, it, the learning almost needs to be in situ because there's so much learned from actually being physically present in a scenario which is going wrong yeah. or which has been orchestrated to go that way or indeed from a simulation which is quite dynamic and changing constantly. Constantly, and and it's very difficult to mimic that 
in, in in a digital context and so to your point it's you're right it's being able to supplement supplement training where possible but 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 knowing where the real advantage and the real learning occurs from some of these from them some of these situations because it's only in situ that you get to feel the dynamic nature of how quickly an environment can can change um and and i know you you you're a big advocate of that from from some of the heat training yes yes i mean you cannot you you have to adapt all the time to what is the behavior of participants during that simulation under these stressful conditions, but not extreme conditions, but they, we immerse them into the scenario. And you are part of this immersion. You are immersed in kind of this simulation and this environment with them. Uh, and all the details on the behavior, the reactions, the body language, um, the comments they do to themselves, how they look at the stare at each other, how learning is going uh, is going on and how it's taking place. Uh, that is something you cannot do digitally. I mean, you are then with them in the simulation, in the scenario on the field, and 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 that is something you cannot mimic through online. That is, I think, the heat training is the only one uh, among all trainings that we deliver. That is the only one you cannot you cannot deliver it online. You can have a, a mixed approach, hybrid approach uh, between online distance training eventually uh, for some theory. But everything which is practice and specifically simulations in which learning happens of people anticipating or, or improvising uh, things. Um, and you have to debrief not only on the good or bad performance of the exercise, but also on the reactions of the people uh, and what specifically happened in that moment where you felt that this happened to your colleague. Those are, those are things that we can only do definitely. Yeah. And, and Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and I really appreciate your perspectives just from just the longevity of a fantastic career and just your learned experience. So, um, so thanks just for, just for taking the time out to speak to us today. It's been a pleasure, Owen. Always, always a pleasure talking to you and working with you. And uh, yeah, and I'm uh, learning from you a lot as well. <laughs> very, very, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me with you. Uh, it was a pleasure. Really. Oh, Thank, you. Thank you, Cleo.